0: Before we begin this episode, I want to do a little housekeeping. First and foremost, it was pointed out to me by a listener, thank you, Courtney, that it would be beneficial to have a regular release schedule for these episodes, and I totally, totally agree. The fact is, I do everything myself, and it's way too time-consuming for just one person. So in the future, I'll be adding some help. It's not fair to make those that appreciate this podcast to wait because I too would get frustrated. So look for a change on that coming soon. Just remember, I do read your comments and listen to what you say. So please don't hesitate to reach out to me. While I may not implement everything, I do take all of the comments into account for future episodes. So with that being said, let's get on with it. as i wrote the intro to this episode and worry that it's taking way too long it's the night before memorial day tomorrow i will head to the gym at eight o'clock in the morning and do my annual murph workout with dozens of other crossfitters locally and hundreds of thousands globally if you don't know about it i highly suggest you check it out it's something we do every memorial day It's a time-honored tradition to honor Lieutenant Michael Murphy. You might know him from the movie Lone Survivor. If you haven't watched it, I highly, highly recommend it. As grueling as the workout is, these workouts are a nice mental break from serial killers. Right now, I hear children outside playing, a small annoying neighbor dog that's barking, probably at its own shadow because it barks at everything. There's a small party happening at a house a couple of doors down, someone is pounding something not far in the distance, and here I sit in my home office, reading case files and information about a crime that happened over 40 years ago and instilled fear in large groups of people up and down the west coast of California from 1975 to 1986. I really didn't know what I was getting into. After reading newspaper clippings, uh, Michelle McNamara's incredible book called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and a self published book entitled Sudden Terror by one of the detectives on the case, Larry Crompton, I felt overwhelmed. Now, sure, I could give you all a Cliff's Notes or in the modern vernacular, a TLDR version of what occurred, but that just isn't my style nor do I think that the victims in this case deserve a shortened version. The fact is, what occurred during this time period is astonishing. Over 50 rapes, 13 murders, and before that, a link to a series of robberies, 130 robberies within a one year period. For over 40 years, police tried to find this man They first called the Visalia Ransacker. Next, he was referred to as the EAR or East Area Rapist. Later, he would again earn a new nickname, the ONS or original Night Stalker. And then finally, the Golden State Killer. But at the time, no one knew that all of these people were one and the same person. When the EAR, the EAR, East Area Rapist, and the ONS, the original Night Stalker, were first connected, the case actually became known collectively as the E R O S case. Now I tell you this now, so that when we get into details, you'll know what particular set of cases I'm referring to, because as you might imagine, over 40 years, it can get quite confusing. The moniker, of these abbreviations and acronyms would later be changed and thereafter referred to as the Golden State Killer. But we would never have this new name if it wasn't for a woman named Michelle McNamara. As my research continued to find details and follow what the police knew or what they didn't know, Reading excerpts from victims of the ear, and later reading about what happened when the ear turned into the ONS, I realized that I could not simply talk about this case without mentioning Michelle. The late Michelle McNamara first became intrigued by the case, and then a sort of purpose hit her after she read Larry Crompton's self-published book. It grabbed hold of her when she realized no one really knew about the case. Yet this man had created fear and anxiety, first in the eastern part of Sacramento, and then later in Southern California. Michelle grabbed onto the case like a woman obsessed, and in my opinion, became one of the very first true crime quote, citizen reporters, if you will, of our time. Well before the immense popularity of true crime blogs and podcasts became the norm, Michelle was intriguing people with what she wrote and what she spoke about in her own podcast called Crime Scene and a website at truecrimediary.com. The more I personally researched everything, I realized how Michelle became so gripped by the case. It's way too easy to get pulled into rabbit hole after rabbit hole because there's just so much terror and havoc that one man created. The bottom line is that without Michelle McNamara and her relentless pursuit of finding this man, it's doubtful that what ended up happening would have happened at all. Welcome to the Beach House 34 True Crime Podcast. I'm your host, Christine Worth. It's 1974 in Visalia, California, and Visalia has a burglary problem. Visalia sits just south of Fresno, California and east of Exeter on Highway 99. Someone is breaking into homes at a frantic pace, but not necessarily to burglarize. No, instead, this suspect breaks into homes and takes items like family photos, or personal items that would have sentimental value. He doesn't bother taking more expensive things like televisions or stereos. And one time he even took orange juice from the refrigerator and poured it all over the clothes in the bedroom closet. It seems that his only purpose is to enter the home and leave it in a condition that would rival an out of control frat party. But why? Well, it's more as if the burglar's intent is simply just to instill fear as if he were trying to prove a point. He would find cash in the home, but he would leave it out in plain sight so that the owners would be sure to know that, yes, he found their cash, but see, I didn't take it. He would do things that a ticked off young adult might do just to get his kicks. He would unplug appliances and clock radios. He would rifle through drawers and leave clothing strewn about the house. But one thing was nearly constant, and that was the penchant for making sure that women's bras and panties were taken from the drawer and put in odd places. At one time, he would laid them in a baby's crib. Another time, it was just simply tossed all over the bedroom. In one case, a little out of the norm for him, he took the man's underwear and created a neat path down the hallway now even though the results of the robberies appeared to be that of someone young or just pissed off at the world the crimes also gave off some more adult-like signals for instance he would be sure to have an escape route in the event someone came home unexpectedly he was also known to place objects on the doorknobs themselves. So that a loud noise would ensue if someone tried to get inside not a typical teenage prankster method from 1974 until 1975 this burglar who would end up being called the visalia ransacker operated and during this time hit around 130 homes within a one-year period if you're doing the math That averages out to around 10 burglaries a month. Sometime in February of 1975, during the throes of the Visalia Ransacker phase, a father had just gotten home from work and found a man hiding under his daughter's bedroom window, trying to look inside. He scared the man away and tried to chase him, but couldn't catch up. Then, seven months later, on september 11th of 1975. things escalated exponentially around two o'clock in the morning a 16 year old girl awoke to find a strange masked man in her room he had a knife to her neck and threatened that she had better not scream or he'd stab her she struggled with him at which time he then pulled out a gun. Grabbing the 16-year-old, he started to drag her out the back door when he heard a voice scream out, hey, what are you doing? Where are you taking my daughter? The man, gun still in his hand, turned and shot toward the voice. The girl's father, Claude Snelling, a journalism professor at the College of the Sequoias, had been shot once near the shoulder, which ended up spinning him around. Another shot was fired and this time, the bullet went through Claude's side and into his heart. Claude could still make it to the interior of his home, where he collapsed. He died shortly thereafter. The man then released the girl, kicked her in the face at least twice, before taking off into the night. The bullet that had struck and killed Claude Snelling was an exact match to a gun that had recently been reported stolen. The location of the robbery where this gun had been stolen had all of the hallmarks of the Visalia Ransacker. It was later learned that it was Claude Snelling who had in February, seven months earlier, chased away the Peeping Tom from underneath his daughter's window. It was assumed that the man who returned and attempted to abduct Claude's daughter was the same man who had been caught peeping. Over 500 people attended Claude's funeral, and of them, around 12 were plain clothed police officers, hidden in plain sight, knowing that the suspect may show. But since they didn't have a lot of information on the ransacker, at least in regards to his appearance, it's not clear what they were hoping to find. After the shooting incident, Police increased their presence in the neighborhoods most hit by the Visalia Ransacker. He had now graduated to murder suspect. One house on West Kawia Avenue had been of particular interest. In July of 1975, two months before Claude Snelling had been shot, a woman had called the Visalia Police Department to report that her 19-year-old daughter had run into a man in their backyard and this man had been wearing a ski mask. When he was noticed, he took off running. When she spoke to Detective Bill McGowan, he advised the woman to keep an eye out for any strange footprints around their home. And when she saw them to call him and let him know. She kept her word. In December, the same woman called Detective McGowan and said that she had been looking around her house and the footprints were back. McGowan armed with this good lead knew that this was the house that he'd be staking out. So on December 10th, the detective positioned himself inside an open garage near the home. All the lights were off and he sat back in the darkness waiting for movement. A few hours passed when he noticed a figure walk by the open garage door. As the figure moved around the garage, it was evident that they were trying to hide as they walked crouched over. McGowan walked out of the dark garage and watched as the intruder attempted to open the backyard gate. It was then that the officer shone his flashlight on the man. The man took off running and McGowan gave chase. The suspect jumped a fence and McGowan fired a warning shot. The man speaking in a weirdly high pitched voice held up his hands and said, Oh my God, don't hurt me. See, my hands are up. As officer McGowan looked at the suspect, he noticed that his face was light skinned, very round and looked baby like and soft. In reality, the suspect who now sat in front of detective McGowan only had his right hand in the air his left was reaching behind him grabbing his gun he lifted the gun and fired at mcgowan but the bullet amazingly ended up hitting the officer's flashlight dead on and it stopped the bullet in its path one of mcgowan's eyes had to be patched up due to powder burns he received after the bullet hit the flashlight but the thing is mcgowan was the very first officer ever to come face-to-face with the Visalia Ransacker. The problem was, he couldn't remember very much at all, aside from the light skin and babyface features. So in January of 1976, it was agreed that McGowan would undergo hypnosis at the LAPD's headquarters in Los Angeles in the hopes of gathering more details about this suspect. The first thing that they had McGowan do prior to his hypnosis session uh, was to describe the man that he saw to a police sketch artist. Now, once this was finished, the hypnosis began. The hypnosis session yielded a little more information about the suspect. The thing that he remembered the most was how baby-faced the man was to the point of thinking that he probably didn't even have to shave. But he wasn't a teenager, he was a grown man. The police released the sketch of the man to the press. The Visalia Ransacker never again hit Visalia. In May of 1975, 200 miles away, and while the Visalia Ransacker was the most active, a 23-year-old woman, we'll call her Sarah, moved to Rancho Cordova, just outside of Sacramento to be closer to her dad. Sarah had settled in and was living with and enjoying spending time with her dad, when in 1976, just over about a year after she had moved in, she had noticed what she thought was the same vehicle following her. It had happened on a few occasions, and each time she would look to see who was driving, she was never able to see a face. At first, she thought she was just being paranoid, but then hang-up phone calls began at her house. The phone would ring, and when she answered, no one would be there. This happened on a consistent basis for some time, and then all of a sudden, they stopped. In June of that same year, and not long after the hang-up phone calls had stopped, Sarah's father had to go to Boston for business, and he wouldn't return until July. Since she hadn't received one of those creepy hang up phone calls in a while, she didn't think twice when one day the phone rang and she answered it, believing it to be her dad. The caller hung up. Then at 5 a.m. on June 18th, 1976, a call came into the Rancho Cordova Police Department. A woman was reporting a home invasion and a rape. And could they please get there as soon as possible. The police found Sarah on the floor of her father's bedroom. Her hands were still tied behind her back. And in order to make the phone call, she had to knock the phone to the floor and try and dial the police. When she was let loose from her bindings, the questioning began. She told them that he wore a mask, like a ski mask with a seam down the middle, and only had holes for the eyes. He had come into her room while she was sleeping, and it took her a while to understand what was happening. She had awoke to the sounds of tapping on her doorframe. She remembered that he had gloves, he wasn't wearing any pants, and had pale legs with dark hair, and that his legs were muscular. She did remember that he was wearing a dark t-shirt. He had a knife with him, and put it against her head, telling her, if you make one move or sound, I'll stick the knife in you. But the voice wasn't normal. It was like a hoarse whisper. He had brought bindings to tie her wrist together and then used one of her white slips to stuff into her mouth so she couldn't scream. When he was done, he asked if she had any money and it sounded as though he was talking through his teeth as if his jaw was wired shut. When she started to answer him, he told her to shut up. He then wandered around the house, opening drawers and cabinets, especially in the kitchen. And after some time had passed, she realized that he was gone. That's when she called the police. She described the man around 20 to 25 years old, white, around 5'9", and 165 to 170 pounds. Police discovered later that he had entered her house by jimmying open a back door. They also found her purse on the back porch, its contents dumped out. Two pieces of rope had been left at the house as well, and her bedsheets and some towels were taken as evidence. Now, at the time, police departments stuck to the crimes that were happening within their own jurisdiction. This means that the ski mask that was described by this victim would just be another description to add to their case file. What the Rancho Cordova police didn't know was that this description of a ski masked intruder was very familiar to the Visalia Police Department, but since they didn't communicate with one another, No connection was made at the time. To make matters worse, there was never a newspaper article about this attack at the time it happened. Now, I can only speculate as to why this might be the case. But it's my own suspicion that, quite frankly, the departments were overwhelmed with rapists operating in the vicinity at the time. The 70s in Sacramento was no stranger to rapist activity, and they had nicknames for all of them. The early bird rapist had reportedly attacked 41 times. The stinky rapist, as funny as that sounds, had another 48 or so rapes. Now reportedly he moved to Oakland and was never caught. Then there was the car key rapist who would rape women in their cars and then take the key with him. And then finally the pillow rapist who was accused of 17 separate attacks. And so this current rape was probably just one of the dozens that police had to investigate at the time. Now, this doesn't mean that we should give them some leeway. As a matter of fact, it's likely that yes, they were overwhelmed, but even more likely, and sadly, that they didn't consider this matter all that serious. This was pretty triggering to me when I read about it. But in the 1970s, rape was not all that uncommon, as is pretty obvious by the number of rapists operating in the area at the time. However, even if a rapist was caught, his maximum sentence was 90 days in jail. Maximum 90 days. But the number of rapists operating in the area was still quite appalling, even to the police. And this was so appalling that a PSA, or public service announcement, ran on television. Take a listen. The sex offender today has a greater number of available women to choose from. There are more working women, single women living alone, not with their families or with men. Because of the mobility and the visibility of today's woman, she must learn to understand the rapist. For today's woman to understand the rapist, she's gonna learn to understand the man. The young girl made one bad move after another. Her attitude was much too inviting. She should never have stopped to window shop at night. She parked in a dark section of the parking lot and didn't have her keys ready in her hand. As astonishing as these clips are, the fact was that in the 70s, the belief was, as stomach-churning as it is, that it was the woman's responsibility to ensure she wasn't raped. The following month, in July of 1976, in Carmichael, California, 12 miles from the attack in Rancho Cordova, two young girls, aged 15 and 16, had been attacked by a man who entered their home in a ski mask. They both had to be taken to the hospital because they had been beaten. The 15-year-old was the only one of the two who had been raped. Little information is known about these two because they were juveniles at the time. The next month on August 29th, again in Rancho Cordova, a 12-year-old girl we'll call Jessica was woken up by someone trying to get into her bedroom window, scared jessica ran to her parents room her mom was there but her dad was not he had just gone to work at 10 30 that evening also within the home was the young girl's 15 year old sister whom we'll call dawn after jessica ran to her mother's room and told her what had happened they both went to dawn's room and checked on her she was safely in her bed and fast asleep The mom and daughter then made their way back to Jessica's room, where they saw a man in her bedroom window. As soon as they noticed him, he ran back towards the fence in their backyard. The two then ran to the kitchen to call 911. And as the mother is on the phone, she turns around to see a man standing there naked from the waist down and wearing a brown T-shirt, black gloves and a ski mask. In his right hand, he had a club and in the other, a gun. He told her to hang up the phone. And as she did, he moved in towards them. The mom protecting her daughter reached out and batted the hand with the gun away from them. The club that was in the attacker's other hand came down hard on her and nearly knocked her out cold, but she was still able to move. He made both of them move into the living room and sit on the couch where he began to tie the mom's wrists together. He told them he was only there for the money. As he's tying the mom's wrists, she fought and was able to grab her daughter and run out the door. They ended up at a neighbor's house and were brought inside. Dawn, in the meantime, had awoken to the commotion. And when she looked outside, saw her mom and her young sister running towards the neighbors she then smartly climbed out her bedroom window and ran to the same neighbor's house the police were called and arrived around 3:30 in the morning the man had already gone but another witness who had been looking outside told the police she had seen a man leave the house and crouch behind the bushes as the officers approached As soon as the police went into the house, she saw him stand up and walk down the street, still naked from the waist down, looking as if he didn't have a care in the world. Less than a week later, again in Carmichael, another attack, just like the others occurred. In late September, a home in Citrus Heights was burglarized. It was an odd burglary, Whomever it was had taken some of the homeowner's jewelry, but then they had left behind some of their neighbor's jewelry. They later discovered that the burglar had come in through their three-year-old son's bedroom window. Two weeks after this burglary, the first of a series of four attacks that happened in October occurred on the 5th. It was a Tuesday, like any other Tuesday, a woman will call Anne, was asleep in bed with her three-year-old son, her husband having left for work just moments earlier. She heard a light switch and then footsteps. Now thinking it was her husband who may have forgotten something, she called out for him. It was then that a man in a ski mask walked into her bedroom. Immediately, Anne felt that this was the same man who had two weeks earlier burglarized their home. The timing of his entry was just too perfect not to have been planned. Again, the man's M.O. was the same as the previous attacks on women around the same area. Later, it was determined that he had entered the home through her son's bedroom window, just as the burglar had done two weeks earlier. This attack, however, was the first to bring in a female officer, Carol Daly someone who was familiar with sex crimes and very likely a welcome sight to a woman who now had someone other than male officers to talk to about the incident. Still, there was no press on these attacks. Attacks six, seven, and eight all occurred in the month of October of 1976, and they were all located in Citrus Heights, Rancho Cordova and Carmichael, all locations within 20 miles of one another and all in suburbs east of the city of Sacramento. Attacks seven and eight occurred within a 24 hour period. And all of them with the same description of a ski masked intruder who appeared in their bedrooms late at night with a knife, a flashlight and a gun. The police had another serial rapist on their hands early in november of 1976 and after eight rapes by the same man the sacramento Bee finally ran an article about the rapes occurring in the sacramento area the headline read man hunted as suspect in eight rapes by warren holloway and here's what it said sheriff's detectives today disclosed an extensive hunt has been underway for a man who has attacked and raped eight women in the past year in areas east of Sacramento. Four of the attacks were last month. Shelby, the police officer, also said the man, is responsible for a case in which a woman was molested and another in which a rape attempt was thwarted. A reward of $2,500 is offered for information leading to the arrest and conviction of the rapist. Now I wonder as I'm sure all of you wonder why it took eight rapes to make the paper. The official explanation was that the sheriff's department feared widespread panic would result if they publicized the attacks. It was explained further that the police were hoping to entrap the rapist. And at this point, the police officially gave this attacker a nickname, the East area rapist or EAR because these particular attacks have occurred on the east side of Sacramento within middle to upper class Sacramento suburbs. Now a follow-up article a few days later shed a little more light on the new fear that was gripping those living east of Sacramento. And again, the article ran in the Sacramento Bee and was written by Iris Yang and Bertha Gaffney Gorman. The article gave more extensive information It states that all of the rapes have occurred between 11 p.m. and 6.45 a.m., while most of suburbia is fast asleep. These attacks have also only occurred when there had been no men in the homes, but at times, children were present. His entry into the homes has, except for one instance, been through unlocked windows. Shortly after this latest article ran, The ear claimed his ninth victim, a teenage girl living in Citrus Heights. She was at home alone watching television when the man snuck up behind her and threatened her with a knife. After blindfolding her, he shut off the lights and the television in the home and then drugged the girl outside where he then replaced the screen of the window he had entered through. He then drugged the girl down a hill and then a half a mile away from her home. Finally, Stopping, he would ask her questions. Like if she attended a certain college nearby, she did not. When he pressed harder, this time putting the knife against her throat, she still gave him the same answer. This girl had not been raped, but when the detectives had her retrace her steps, they did locate torn clothing, shoestrings indicative of the ear and panties. She recalled that she could see, but only partially out of her blindfold. She saw his shoes and noticed that in his left hand was a small flashlight. It was curious to me as to why with all of the rapists running rampant in the area at the time, why they would focus on the ear on the East area rapist. An article goes on to explain that it's because the ear is a repeat offender with a quote, high tendency towards violence, little, does the public know at this point in time that the current attacks are just the appetizer. Even so husbands are canceling business trips. Some are having iron bars installed on their windows, burglar alarms and floodlights are being purchased at an alarming rate and husbands and boyfriends are instructing their girlfriends and their wives on how to use handguns. The East area rapist, is said to be white between five foot eight and six feet tall, 25 to 35 years old with clean, dark hair. The sheriff's department had begun to receive all kinds of phone calls based on rumors that were spreading like wildfire. The rumors were that the man was attacking every hour. Another had heard that nine women were raped by the same man. Another heard that the way he got into the house was by quote, breaking down front doors and tearing down windows, which we'll learn was really not too far from the truth. Some residents of these suburbs even claimed that they had no idea that these crimes were even happening because rumors were getting so out of hand, meetings were held at a local school to talk about what was happening. Two officers, one of them, including Carol Daly, spoke at a meeting in Del Deo On November 3rd, over 500 people showed up and all of them had questions. The rape crisis clinic also set up workshops for women to teach them self defense. So now that the press blackout period had lifted and the press was given the ability to actually report on these rapes, the number of attacks attributed to the ear was reported on a near daily basis. In January of 1977, another attack was reported. According to the article in the Sacramento Bee quote, officers said the rapist gained entrance to the 25 year old woman's home shortly after midnight, bound her with rope and raped her several times. The woman told officers she was asleep when the man entered her home, apparently through an unlocked door. Because it was dark, she was not able to provide a full description of her attacker. However, she did say he threatened her with an ice pick. She also said that he wore gloves as the suspect has in most of the other attacks in the east area of the county and city. Officers said the victim is separated from her husband and was home alone. Sheriff's officials have assigned six detectives to, to the investigation full time. Detectives say there are indications some of the victim's homes were watched before the attacks. In most cases, the man has entered the houses through unlocked windows. He usually blindfolds and ties up his victims, making it difficult to get a good description. A later article would give recommendations by the sheriff's department to the public on how to lock their homes. I've been recommending to people that they go to a reputable locksmith. It could cost them $100 or a little more to make their homes secure, said department spokesman Bill Miller. But a lot of people think their homes are secure when they're not. Police were concerned. This attacker seemed to watch a neighborhood before attacking. He would learn the patterns of the homeowners. When was garbage day? What time did the husband usually leave for work? He would also call victims on a regular basis. And when they answered, he'd hang up the phone. It was later believed that this was to determine their schedule. At times he would burglarize the home ahead of time, getting the layout. As time went on, he was known to leave his bindings within the home hidden so that they'd be available when he needed them one couple found bindings located underneath their couch cushions february 7th of 1977 was attack number 13. the news story said a housewife was attacked and raped early today in her home near crestview drive the woman in her early 30s told police a man entered her home shortly after her husband left for work at 6 45 a.m he bound her hands and feet with strips of cloth and raped her. He left the house around 8 a.m. The man wore a mask and gloves. The woman, still bound, was able to crawl out of the house. Her screams were heard by neighbors who found her at about 830 in the morning. On May 3rd, the 19th attack attributed to the ear was reported by the Sacramento Bee's Bill Wilson. Rapist makes 19th attack after binding victim and mate. Now this is different. Here's how the story goes. The ear attacked his 19th victim this morning after awakening a Glenbrook area couple and holding them at gunpoint while he tied them up and covered their heads with blankets, police said. The rapist who pried open a sliding glass door to enter the family's home didn't awaken two young children who slept through the ordeal. The rapist armed with a large caliber pistol spent more than two hours in the house, terrorizing and ransacking after he broke in about 2 AM. He slipped into the couple's bedroom while they were sleeping and pointed the gun at them. When he awakened to them, the woman was led to an upstairs living room where she was raped. The rapist who wore a ski mask found and stole some cash as he later ransacked the entire house. This was not the first in a series of rapes where a man was in the home. Bill Miller, a spokesman for the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department revealed today there was another case in which a man was tied up before the rape. He wouldn't however say which case this was. On May 5th, 1977 in Orangevale, victim number 20 was a woman and her male friend. We'll call them Susan and Larry. Susan and Larry were coworkers and Susan had arrived at Larry's to discuss some work related information. She had also brought her two dogs with her. Now as they entered Larry's home, the dogs went out back and immediately began barking. Now they didn't think anything of it. I mean, it was a new area and the surroundings were likely confusing to the dogs. So Susan just let them be. Just after midnight, Susan decided to leave, and Larry walked her to the door. Susan led the dogs out, and they both immediately turned to the right of the house and again began their barking. There, right in front of them, stood a man with the gun pointed towards Susan and Larry. He demanded that they both get back inside the house, and if they didn't do what he said, he'd blow their brains out all over the house. Susan remembered he had on a ski mask, gloves, a dark colored jacket, and a dark sweater underneath. They all turned back to go into the house and the dogs followed. Now the dogs continued to bark at this intruder, but they never attacked him. The man told them to lie on their stomachs and then threw shoelaces at Susan, telling her to tie up Larry. In the meantime, the dogs continued to bark. And the man told Susan to quiet them down or he'd blow all their brains out. So she put the dogs into a bedroom. Again, he had Susan lay back down and then ordered her to cross her ankles, but he didn't tie them. The attacker then grabbed dishes and put them on their backs. He told them if he heard them click, he'd kill them. All he wanted was their money and he would leave. Larry said he'd give him anything he wanted After this statement, the attacker put a knife to Larry's neck and told him to shut up. He then grabbed Susan and took her to a back bedroom where he put a knife against her throat. He blindfolded her and then raped her. As he's raping Susan, he says to her that she, quote, had better swear to God you didn't see a van down the street. He made this statement three times and then made her repeat it. Susan then heard him head to the kitchen and grab food. She could then hear him eating and drinking. Later, she told police it sounded like he was trying to disguise his voice by talking through his teeth. When the police arrived, they noticed coffee cups and dishes on the floor of the living room. Kitchen drawers and cabinets stood open, and it was obvious the telephone cord had been cut, preventing the couple from calling for help. As his attacks grew, so did his boldness. Guns and knives weren't his only source of terror he'd inflict. At times, after he blindfolded his victims, he would grab a pair of scissors and click them next to their ear, threatening to cut off an appendage. Other times, he would talk to them and tell them that he knew who they were, even use their first names, and then make the victim believe that this rapist is someone that they too should know after all how else would he know their name the fact is he would find the victim's purse and dig through to locate their driver's license sometimes he would even take the driver's license with him so that he could later terrorize the woman yet again by calling them on the phone and leaving messages It was known that he'd stay for hours in a residence as the victims lie tied up and blindfolded. He would purposefully be quiet, making them think that he had left. When they began to move and felt comfortable enough to attempt to release themselves, he would then make a sound startling them. The psychological torment was just part of his victimization. The police had pulled out all the stops, including bringing in a special forces military commander, because they felt that the ear may have a background in military training. They used night scopes. They patrolled neighborhoods where he was known to frequent and their budget was running low. The strange thing was that the ear operated as if he knew exactly what the police were going to do. He would know where to park. He always wore gloves so he didn't leave any fingerprints. In one instance, a woman tried to scramble away from him and he yelled freeze. Was he one of them? Was he a police officer? The attacks continued without any headway in finding out who this guy was. However, some of his methods started to take a turn towards the bizarre. A few days after the latest attack on Susan and Larry, a woman woke up to a strange sound. Someone was walking on their roof. She woke her husband up and said that the neighborhood dogs were barking and someone was on the roof of their home. After listening for a while, the husband figured that whatever it was was gone now and they went back to sleep. Two blocks away at 1 o'clock in the morning of the same evening, Another woman whom we'll call Donna woke up also hearing someone walking on their roof. She too awoke her husband, whom we'll call Wayne. They both heard the sound of distinct footsteps walking over the roof of their house. Wayne got up to check on their son while his wife called 911. They could still hear someone on the roof by the time a deputy arrived. After he spoke with the homeowners and checked around the house, He said he couldn't find anything, but did offer to keep patrols going on in the neighborhood. An hour later, at two in the morning, Donna again woke up Wayne and told him that someone was trying to get inside the house. He then went to the sliding glass patio doors to look outside. He flipped on the light and nothing was there. It was eerily silent. Not even a dog barked. Leaving the light on, he determined that no one was there and he told Donna he would check the yard in the morning. On the 14th of May, nine days after the last attack, a couple in Citrus Heights was the latest victim of the ear. They had only lived in their house a few months. When the previous owner of the home had heard about the attack, she called the police and she told them that while she was in the process of selling the home and showing it, A man had visited and said he was from a realty company. As he walked around the house, he seemed more interested in the locks on the doors and windows than anything else. She mentioned he was well-dressed, but when he left, he got into a very old and, quote, ratty car. She further mentioned that prior to her moving, she had received several hang-up phone calls. On May 17th, 1977, three days after the previous attack, the Sacramento Bee posted a sketch of the ear based on eyewitnesses accounts. The headline read, East Area Rapist Attacks Number 23. And here's how it read. The rapist told the victims that he would kill his next two victims later that night. The rapist made the death threats to his victim and her husband, but gave conflicting reasons for the threats. He told the woman he would kill next time if there were any press coverage of this morning's a- attack, but then he told her husband he would kill if there were no press coverage of the incident. The threats were unofficially considered part of the rapist's increasing bravado by some investigators. The sheriff's office at first asked local news organizations not to report today's attack, but after analyzing the conflicting statements of the rapist deputies called a press conference to release a composite sketch of the suspect and a psychological profile that has been drawn by a panel of psychologists and psychiatrists in the community. It goes on to say the man is quote, a probable, paranoid schizophrenic who feels sexually inadequate. The rapist was probably raised in an upper middle-class home by a domineering mother and a weak father. He's probably an only child, but may have a younger sister. He is believed to be of greater than average intelligence at least a high school graduate who may have been interested in police work or military officers training at some point he's probably unemployed now little did they know at the time how true some of these statements were let's continue with the article the rapist if threatened might be violent and possibly self-destructive if caught He might try to take a hostage or stage a shootout with his captors. But if confronted in a non-threatening situation, the rapist is probably complacent and gives no indication he's a violent criminal. The psychological profile indicates the rapist feels sexually inadequate and is, I'm going to pause here for a second because what follows may be kind of triggering for some. So just a heads up. As I was saying, The article says the rapist feels sexually inadequate and is in a homosexual panic because of inadequate physical endowment. The understanding is that since he is inadequately endowed, he can't establish a normal relationship with women and raping is his way to compensate. Although investigators have gathered thick files of information about the rapist and his attacks, they are no closer. catching him than they were 19 months ago as deputies detailed today's incident the ski masked rapist entered a home off american river drive near jacob lane about 1 30 a.m in the del deo estates just outside and east of sacramento again he forced the woman at gunpoint to tie up her husband and then led the woman to another part of the house where she was attacked He stayed in the home for about an hour and a half. During the incident, he spoke in a low voice that alternated in pitch and sometimes used a Southern accent. The sketch that was released and that was shown alongside this article is a composite of the suspect after the most recent attack that was created by piecing together bits of a description gathered from the 23 women the man has attacked since October of 1975. Now, when the public learned of this new threat, this threat to, to kill, they all braced themselves for what they believed was about to happen. Someone was going to die. They did not. The fear in Sacramento is palpable. Although the rapists didn't follow through, With his threats to kill the next victims they still live in constant fear porch lights are on all night gun and lock sales are soaring a local group of citizens is offering a ten thousand dollar reward vigilante groups consisting of 300 men cruise the streets at night with cb radios to catch this man that has caused so much terror couples are even sleeping in shifts 2500 more calls have come through the police switchboard than they normally have over 2000 of them were with tips that they thought may help catch this rapist commentary from the public is then published in the newspaper one comment was some predict that soon he will enter the wrong home and be shot to death quote his loathsome career will terminate where it should in the county morgue with no long drawn out trial, no expense to taxpayers, no plea bargaining, no bail, no parole, no probation, no pardon, no profit for the attorneys, and no more ear. Another person was angry that the vice mayor at the time, vice mayor Matsui, had used police funds that were much needed and instead put them towards combating prostitution near his own personal offices. Three days. After these opinions were posted in the newspaper, the ear attacked his 24th victim, this time in a new neighborhood. Now, perhaps he was getting skittish. Perhaps he read all the articles and knew that his original stomping grounds were now hyper alert. Whatever the case was, he moved to the city of Sacramento itself, not the east side where he was expected to strike, but directly inside the city. Then things went quiet. For three months, nothing happened. No ear attacks, no burglaries attributed to the ear, nothing until early September, 1977 in Stockton, 48 miles south of Sacramento. A couple awoke in their bed to the sound of moving curtains. The outside floodlights had come on, but all they saw inside their room was a bright flashlight shining into their eyes. The next thing they knew, a man was beside their bed. Just like other cases, he said he needed money, but he never took any. The man was tied up, while the woman was taken to a separate room where she would be raped. As was often the case, the man would rape the victim, leave her tied up, and then start to rummage throughout the kitchen, looking through drawers and cabinets, when he finished this process, he would then return to the victim and rape her again. And this process would repeat itself until finally everything went quiet and it was apparent the man had left. Now, even though he, all, he said all he wanted was money, what was often missing were items that held sentimental value, such as rings and photos, and as I've mentioned, the driver's licenses of the victims. The ear was back. Another couple was attacked on the 21st of October at three o'clock in the morning. This time the attack occurred at a home in the Northeast suburb of Sacramento called Foothill farms. And this is 12 miles Northeast of Sacramento. It was the first time the ear had attacked in this area. It was also the first time that he had forced his way into a home by breaking down doors. This time he had made his way into the couple's garage and then forcibly broke down the door that led into the house. This same year, he attacked two more couples on October 29th, just a handful of days after the October 21st attack. But this time it was in the town of Arden Arcade, just eight miles south of Foothill Farms. His next attack was on November 10th in Sacramento, and then another attack in early December again in Foothill Farms. Still, authorities are no closer to identifying this serial rapist, even 29 victims later. Nothing happened for the rest of 1977. Then in 1978, another attack in late January, this time in Carmichael. On February 4th, of 1978 a small article appeared on the third page of the sacramento Bee. it was tucked in towards the bottom and above the article was a wedding photo of a young couple sergeant brian maggiore and his wife katie they had been married just two years brian was 21 and katie was 20. brian was an air force sergeant and they lived in rancho cordova the night before The young couple was taking their dog for a walk when they were confronted by a man with a gun. They attempted to run into the backyard of a home that was close by and the man followed them and shot them both. There were no leads in this case as to why the man confronted them or why they were even shot to death. But it was later determined that the couple had inadvertently run into the ear as he was preparing to attack another couple. Between February and July, there were seven more ear attacks. Another attack in Stockton, Sacramento, Modesto and Davis. Modesto was by far the furthest south that the ear had traveled up to this point. In August of 1978, a meeting occurred between the Concord Police Department and the Sacramento Police Department task force that had been set up to catch the East Area Rapist. The Sacramento PD believed that the ear was headed their way, even though Concord was about an hour and a half west from the rest of the attacks. The Concord police group was briefed on what information the Sacramento PD had, that he wore a ski mask and gloves. He often used shoelaces to tie his victims and often brought them with him. It was disclosed that sometimes he would even enter the home prior to the attack to hide the bindings so that they were there when he finally did decide to attack. The police were frustrated. They had spent nearly a million dollars and still had no idea who this guy was or where he worked. The Sacramento PD offered to open up all the files they had on the man to the Concord Police Department with the suggestion that they work together to help find this man who had been terrorizing the suburbs of Sacramento. But Concord was reluctant. They didn't believe that in their area, known for low crime and definitely not of the rapist type, would ever hit their area. Plus at the time, and maybe still today, I don't know, departments are reluctant to work with one another now concord just two months later would realize their grave mistake on october 2nd 1978 a woman we'll call her brenda who lived on minert road in concord california had left her house to head to the store across her street she noticed a car that she hadn't seen before now while this wasn't unusual What was unnerving was that there was a man sitting in the front slouched down, and he seemed to be looking at houses in the area. Two days later, on the 4th of October, at 1.30 in the morning, also on Minert Road, a 17-year-old, we'll call Maria, came running into her dad's bedroom and woke him from a deep sleep. She hurriedly and breathlessly told him that there was a man in the backyard. In the backyard, Maria's father, whom we'll call David, had been doing some work, and there were some long aluminum pieces that were all strewn about. Both Maria and her father heard the sound of someone stepping on one of these stray pieces. David ran to a window that overlooked the backyard and couldn't see anyone out there. Not concerned, he told Maria to go back to bed, and he did the same. It wasn't long after he had gotten back into bed that he heard the sound again. This time, he wasn't messing around with looking out a window. He ran straight to his closet and grabbed his gun. Keeping all the lights off, he again looked out his window and saw what looked like a man just a few feet from his house. David unlocked the window, pointed the gun outside and hollered, what the fuck are you doing out there? At the man in the yard. The man responded with, I'm looking for a friend. And then David yelled, get out of my yard or I'll blow your fucking head off. The man ran toward the front of the house as did David, opening the front door and running outside. He didn't see anyone. David then went back inside and went to bed. On October 6th of 1978, on Belan Court in Concord, California. Belan Court actually sits just off of Minert Road. And this particular night, a man walked toward a house that had a garage. He looked into the garage through the window and saw that there weren't any vehicles inside. He then made his way to the house where he peered in windows and didn't see anyone home. When he wasn't able to gain entry through any doors or windows, he made his own. At one window, he removed the exterior screen and then with his gloved hands used a screwdriver and placed it on the glass just near the lock to the window. With a couple of hard jabs, he made a hole large enough to reach in and unlock the window. Then he slid inside once inside the home. He again locked the window he had just entered through and then went to the front door where he undid the deadbolt, leaving the door unlocked. He made his way back to the window he had entered and replaced the screen. The owners of the house will call them the Millers along with their baby, didn't get home until later. As they're coming inside, Mr. Miller walked by his office door, which was shut. This was unusual since he always kept it open. As Mrs. Miller went and put the baby to bed, Mr. Miller made the rounds around the house to be sure that everything was locked. When he came to the front door and noticed the deadbolt had not been secured, he hollered to his wife and asked if she had opened it when they got home she hadn't and he was certain that he had locked it when they left around three o'clock in the morning mr miller woke up because a light was shining in his eyes he didn't think it was morning yet so he tried to shut his eyes harder when something hit his foot he opened his eyes to see a man standing at the foot of his bed a flashlight in one hand a gun in the other pointed straight at mr miller The man said, I just want food and money. That's all. I'll kill you if you don't do as I say. But the man didn't speak using a regular voice. Instead, it was more of a whisper. Mrs. Miller was now wide awake and in shock. The man ordered both of them to get on their stomachs and then told Mr. Miller to put his hands behind his back. Shoelaces were thrown at Mrs. Miller and the man said to her, tie his hands. He then demanded that mrs miller get on her stomach next mrs miller was tied not only at her wrists like her husband's but also her ankles but she did note that her ankles weren't as tight as her wrists the man said if you look at me i'll have to kill you shoelaces were then taken from within the miller's own bedroom and mr miller's ankles were then tied the man asked Mr. Miller where his wallet was, and then asked Mrs. Miller where her purse was. When they answered him, they left, he left the room. When he returned, he asked if that was all the money that they had. When they said it was, he again left, and they could hear him rummaging in the kitchen. When he returned, they both felt dishes being placed on their backs. If I hear these, I'll blow your fucking heads off. Again, he began to rummage throughout the house. Mrs. Miller then felt the ties from her ankles being removed and the dishes taken off of her back. The man told her to stand up and to not look at him. He then put a knife to her throat and pushed her out of the room. When they were in the living room, he told her to lie down. The television was then turned on and a blanket was put over the screen to dull the light. He then returned to the bedroom where he told her husband that if he heard the dishes move, he'd kill everyone in the house. Back at Mrs. Miller, he tore off her clothing and threatened to cut off her baby's ear if she made any noise. Before he raped her, he said her first name. When he was finished, she could hear him somewhere in the house crying. She again heard him rummaging and knew that he was going in and out of the attached garage and then nothing. Mrs. Miller called the police and when they arrived, they did discover that over 4,000 worth of items, $4,000 worth of items had been taken, including appliances, camera equipment, jewelry, dishes, and even silverware. Now this is odd for the ear. He usually doesn't steal this much. As I went through all the cases, at least the ones where the details were available to read, it dawned on me that many times that a gun is mentioned it's in the man's left hand not always but quite frequently this would assume that the perpetrator is left-handed or at the least ambidextrous at least to me yet in all of the documentation i've read or watched i don't recall this ever being mentioned you know anyway that's neither here nor there it's just an observation that i had On October 13th, seven days from the last attack and only two blocks away on Ryan Court, a couple was awakened by a flashlight shining in their face. The woman, we'll call Janet, stared in fear at the man at the foot of her bed. The man said, don't move or I'll blow your heads off. Her boyfriend, we'll call Greg, awoke with a start after Janet had screamed. Again, the man told the couple, I don't want to hurt you. I just want food and money for my girlfriend and me roll over and put your face in the pillow, put your hands behind your back. He then instructed Janet to tie Greg's hands as he tossed a pair of white shoelaces in her direction. After he had tied up both of them, he again rummaged throughout the house. This time though, he hit Greg on the head with his gun, threw a blanket over him and again put dishes on his back. He threatened, If you move, I'll drive this knife into your back. As was his MO, he took Janet into another room to rape her. He would then rummage throughout the house and come back to rape again. This time, Janet heard him go into the garage and then heard him say to what she thought was his partner, here, put this in the car. But she didn't hear a reply, only footsteps october 28th was yet another attack this time a 17 year old arriving home at 4 45 in the morning saw a man in dark clothing climb a fence from the backyard of an adams place home and then walk west on pine valley road the 911 call came in at five o'clock that morning so 15 minutes after the 17 year old had seen this man And the call came in about a rape and robbery that had just occurred on Montclair Place in San Ramon, California. Now, San Ramon is around 19 miles south of Concord. The description of the attacker was the same as all the other ear attacks. They noted this time that there were shoe impressions outside the house that had a herringbone design. Casts were made of the design and it was determined to be a size 9.5. The woman had said that they were royal blue in color. December 2nd was the 42nd attack by the ear. The second attack in San Jose, 37 miles away from the prior attack. Again, the same MO. This time $70, a six pack of Coors beer. The husband's gold nuggets, wedding ring, and a digital clock were all missing. The attacker had also taken the time to eat a box of crackers while at the residence. The ear attacks would continue well into mid-1979. In total, 50 rapes would be attributed to the ear. The last attack would be on July 5th, 1979 in Danville. A good portion of his last attacks had been focused well west of Sacramento, more towards Oakland. It was noted by one of the uh, victims that the attacker had said while attacking the woman, quote, I hate you, Bonnie, I hate you, Bonnie. No one knew who Bonnie was, but it was definitely a clue that they could follow up on. After the last attack in Danville, all went quiet. There were no more ear attacks in the area and people began to relax while their fears were quieted somewhat. The ear had left behind a war zone of mental anguish, constant fear and divorces. Nothing would ever feel the same in those neighborhoods that once felt so safe. You could leave your doors and windows unlocked. Their quiet suburban solitude had been crushed by a single man that still had not been caught and could very well be walking on the streets beside them without them even knowing. Now, little did they know that the attacks hadn't stopped. They had just moved to a new location. And to summarize this episode, because I i know, trust me, it's, it's a lot, the ear terrorized communities all throughout Sacramento, and then later in Concord and areas south, to San Jose and Modesto. No matter where the attacks happened, they all occurred within a few short years, and at least 50 attacks that we know of occurred during this time. While the air attacks seemed to be over in the northern area of California by mid-1979, Little did they know that the crime spree continued some six hours away. In the next episode, we'll find out where the ear went and how his nickname later changed to the original Night Stalker. Be sure to subscribe to Beach House 34 so that you're notified when a new episode is released. And also you can find me on Facebook at Beach House 34 or on Instagram at Beach House 34 podcast. Thank you so much for listening. You beautiful, beautiful people. You are so appreciated. Thank you.